Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 194, recorded for January 4th, 2023. The Cloud Pod's New Year's resolution change everything. Good evening, guys. How's it going? Happy New Year, of course. Happy New Year. Yeah, it just feels like just a couple days after 2020 still. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, I I don't know where the time goes, but it's it's been a fun week. I don't know for like for non-tech news, like watching the House of Representatives not organize itself, you know, after multiple votes. That's that's great. It's good. It's it's a fun uh, fun time to just uh, see some of the craziness that's happening in the new year already, and it's only the first week. So if that this is the beginning of the year and what we look forward to, I man, it's gonna be a long one. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, we're just shaking out all out of the kinks, right? You know, it's like a test run for the year, so it'll quiet down and become you know, a smooth running machine after this, right? Right? Well, it was a nice week to recharge. And uh, why we recharged, uh, Jonathan and I got together our normal meeting spot and we talked about the show and we decided to change everything. So we're changing <laughs> format a little bit. We're changing the things that we're doing just a little bit. And, and it, yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback. And so, um, I would like to highlight, you know, our Slack channel and our Twitter and our, and I'm now a Mastodon. I don't know about you guys, but I've I made it over there as well. Uh, so, you know, you can always add us if you don't like the new format or you don't like the new changes. But, uh, you know, we're going to focus a little bit on uh, some of the big stories, but then really talk about other topics that we think are valuable and have some good discussions about over the next year. And we'll see how it goes. Uh, the lightning round has been officially retired after I won it for the third year in a row. <laughs> decided that uh, it serves purpose. Now, you know, if you're listening to us because you enjoy, you know, us talking about all the news and you still want to be able to stay in touch on the news, we are still going to include all the news that we normally would have covered, but just in the show notes. Uh, so you can still find links to articles and things like that so you can stay on top of it. You can subscribe to our newsletter on our website that gets emailed to you every Tuesday uh, after, you know, so you can always stay up on top of this. So again, we're trying to add more value in a different way, but uh, I think we're still going to do a lot of fun things here. And so uh, we'd love to hear your feedback uh, via the Slack channel. The Twitters, the Mastodons, the email at you know podcast at thecloudpod.net is always a good way to get us as well. Any way you want to reach us, let us know what you think, and uh, we'll go through it. So let's jump into it. Uh, first up, we have a little bit of follow up. Uh, we talked about uh, Benoit, uh, Mark Benoit, uh, the CEO of Salesforce, a few weeks ago, talking about how their new employees were lazy, uh, which is my paraphrasing, <laughs> but uh, it was really just that they were less productive than they used to be. Uh, and so that uh, resulted in a layoff of 10% of their workforce this week and a $1.4 billion restructuring blueprint. Uh, they are writing off about 7,000 employees after they grew to 73,000 employees over the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, quick follow-up there. That, that uh, <laughs> Those type of questions, if your CEO is asking them rhetorically, may not lead to a good outcome for you. <laughs> uh, and Keep that in mind. Yeah, the, the original post did sort of have that smell about it, right? It's clearly... If nothing else, the thought process is going on, and so then that's what where that comment came from. You know, maybe they didn't have concrete plans, but they had a problem to solve for sure, and, and that they were thinking about how to yeah. solve it. And the first question was, make you start thinking about your weak performers. Mm-hmm. And then I come yeah. back to you two weeks later and say, okay, now lay off twelve of them. <laughs> Which ones yeah, would you really? choose? <laughs> Force rank your force rank your employees for for no particular reason. We're mm-hmm. we're not going to use this for anything. Just go yeah. ahead and force rank them. <laughs> Yeah, subtle. <laughs> Please do. Uh, well, Peter missed our last episode of the new year because of holiday shenanigans, which is fine. But he owes our listeners uh, both a 2023 prediction and a favorite announcement. So, Peter, 
Uh, I'll let you start wherever you want to, but uh, give us one of those two things. Okay, I'm going to go with favorite announcement, Aurora Serverless V2, because I think that's one of the areas of sort of the, this uh, this magic middle spot of, I don't want to write to some cloud native database with some proprietary API, but I want a cloud-like relational database. So I think Aurora Serverless is the cool direction to go, and V2 brought some features that make it more serverless and uh, make it more convenient to use and, and more likely that we can use it. So I'm happy to see the development in that direction where you know we're still using a industry standard uh, API like Postgres, and but we get all these serverless benefits. That was mine there. Um, any comments? No, I think it's good. I, I think this is one of those uh, highlight areas though that it's not necessarily as serverless as they make it seem and it does have a pretty high price tag to it, but it's the right direction and scale to zero, um, you know, which V2 kind of gave you finally was the right answer versus V1, which was, you know, yes, you're serverless if you don't mind still paying for the server that's running in the background and the high latency right. of when it needs to scale. Exactly. <laughs> so that's fun. Yeah, and I, I always forget that Aurora is both my, my uh, MySQL and Postgres compatible, right? So like it's, it, it is a very important distinction that it's flexible, right? You can, you don't have to completely re-architect your app if you change your cloud provider or you decide that hosting it on-prem is more cost-effective. Or, and so it is, Aurora is always sort of that, you know, enticing carrot for me, you know, cause it's like, I, I don't, I don't want a design to be flexible and move because I feel like that does the service, you know, it does a disservice, but it's also sort of, it's a, it's a nice to have in the back pocket for sure. I think one of the things I, I really appreciate about Aurora, which actually came out with, with V1, was the RESTful interface. Rather than having to maintain persistent connections from you know tens of thousands of containers, that's that's certainly been a um, a, a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good call out. Cool. And then 2023 prediction. So uh, Benioff is leading the charge along with Amazon and a couple others. But I think that the we're going to have a decent recession here coming up. Everyone's predicting a very mild one, but I don't like the um, uh, the metrics that they're using to predict a mild recession. So I think it's going to be a little deeper. And I think there is a ton of over uh, overhiring in the... SaaS and technology space. And we're going to see significantly more developers getting laid off from big tech companies that really had, you know, sort of either virtual monopolies or enough growth to where they really weren't forced to build efficient companies. And now they're going to be forced to get efficient. And that's going to mean not, you know, letting every single department run all sorts of science projects. Uh, for fun that never uh, deliver any value to the company. So I, I think that if you look at the core value of Google, you look at the core value of Meta, or the core value of Salesforce and Amazon, and then these companies are forced to become efficient and only focus on those core values, there's going to be there could be a really significant number of uh, developers and engineers laid off there. And then also to become more competitive, driving automation solutions for the ops and deployment side of the house. Interesting. Yeah. I think for last year, I saw the final number was about 150,000 tech layoffs globally uh, were seen. 
So you know, do you do you have a number that you kind of think about and what you think the number might look like from a global layoff in tech? So you're saying what was the number? 150. 150,000 so globally were laid off at the end of December, at least you know through public filings. And again, we'll only track public filings, but uh, yeah, yeah. So I bet it's at least double that in okay. 2023. Got it. Well, let's hope that's not true, uh, just because yeah. I, you know. It's hard to bet against, though. It's hard to bet the, against. The indicators, I, yeah. I do hope it doesn't come to fruition. I heard these crazy numbers from um, some other people, like in uh, private equity, who estimate that most SaaS companies could lay off three quarters of their engineers and developers and still run effectively. So, wow. I, I don't run. think that's necessarily <laughs> correct. Like, I think that's overblown a little bit. That's PE people not understanding what it takes to run a. You well, know, I, I think if you, it, I, so I think from the PE perspective, what they're looking at is your product makes money, right? So you're, you sold to a million users and you're making $500 million ACV and you've got this big tech, you know, team that you've built out to develop innovation and you're trying to trace the next hundred you know, million users. But the current million users you have are very profitable and are very happy with your product yep. ideally. And so if I were to cut down your development team, instead of focusing on innovation, I'm focusing on incremental changes and maintenance. How much more revenue can I still derive out of that business over the next five years uh, that would make that interesting? And so that's what I think you're hearing the PE firms basically say is that all this focus on innovation is expensive. And yep. if innovation isn't required for the product, do I really need a team of 400, 500 developers for a billion dollar company or can I get away with 100 developers and maintain and do incremental fixes and changes um, or lipstick on a pig in some cases where you just, you know, just do a big major UI refresh and all of a sudden think people think it's magically new? That is the big question that PE firms typically ask when they're looking at how they want to do an acquisition of a company. I mean, it, it happens all the time. There's some irony in that, really. Yeah. yeah. And it's a big departure from you know, if you've got, you know, if you've got, if you're a publicly traded company, because the street typically, unless you are growing your revenue, they, they will sink you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Totally. But if you're a PE firm, it's, it's about maximizing profits for the PE firm. Don't have to worry about what they think. Yeah. Bring them private. Don't worry about what they think. Of course, those businesses would never have become profitable if they, if the investment hadn't been made in innovation to begin with. So it's sort of, well, but again, when you're when they're buying companies that are either you know in position one, two, or three in a market, um, the momentum of that that market position will get them a long way. And so, the question is, how much more innovation does this product really need to continue to drive derive revenue, and is it still competitive in the market against its competitors, knowing that they have a long way to to catch up? And, and they can know, always cut bait, right? It's yeah, when that when it does start to decline. You know, because, you know, if you don't innovate, then someone's going to come and do something, do the same thing that you do, but slightly better. And, and, you know, as the market shifts over to that new solution, you know, a private equity firm will divest itself of that investment or, or double down, you know, perhaps if they, if they see the potential. But, yeah. Again, let's get out of the depression stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's move to the news this week. Uh, so that, you know, we had a general, you know, we're in the post new year's, uh, period of time. So there's lots of great articles around like things to look for in tech in 2023, or, you know, let me expose you to new tools and DevOps for 2023. And I uh, looked at that list and six of them I already knew about. So it wasn't, they weren't that new, but, uh, you know, there are all kinds of things out there. And this one uh, caught my eye a little bit. It's from the information 
Uh, and they're uh, basically we're saying some of the 2023 tech trends to kind of keep an eye out. I thought they were sort of interesting. Uh, and you know, a lot of it's driven by the fact that the stock market is pivoting away from growth at all costs to profitable growth. Uh, and so, you know, they have some uh, picks that they made, and I, th- I thought we should talk about them real quick. So the first one um, is that a new VC capital playbook will come to uh, bear. The last five-year playbook uh, has been, you know, basically the industry figuring out the next one. Late-stage private investors would pick up growth-based companies, typically once they reach a certain size, and those companies have completely retreated from the market. And so will VCs now basically start looking for back-to-basics and proven founders, or they go for even newer, riskier growth areas? Uh, which, uh, if you know, that was v, you know, uh, crypto. I'm not sure that was a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not yeah. sure where they would go. That's riskier than that. But uh, you know, it's an interesting idea and, and concept. But yeah, I think uh, there is probably some retreading and some retrenching. that's going to have to happen in the VC world. Yeah, I hope they don't go too far down the path of proven founders because I feel like that, you know, you start shrinking the pool of possibility there, and so it gets a little, you know, incestuous. Um, where everything starts to kind of have the same look and feel and it's just different takes on the same sort of, you know, maybe it's a different area, but, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like it's too restrictive, but I also feel like the the growth at any cost and, and the sort of showering money to see what sticks will have to stop because I don't think that they can continue to take their risks and that they were when, you know, when everything was a little bit more bullish. I would think responsible VC companies would um, would have experts. You know, they they would adopt those proven entrepreneurs and proven inventors, bring them on board, and, and use them to help guide startups and to help choose who they invest in. So it's, I mean, it's, I think they need to sort of be uh, have a consultancy function as well as just a capital function. I mean, I, I and I'm all for that because I do think that, you know, a proven founder has great insights. You know, they've done it before and they can help everyone around and then you get the best of both worlds. You know, and so it's why, you know, a lot of founders join boards of directors and stuff in other companies as well. Cool. It's going to be interesting, though, to see if these, you know, valuations come down and all these VCs, especially new ones who started funds and now they're going to be looking at down rounds and their you know existing investments how they how they communicate that to their existing investors and how they raise their next round i mean i think we're going to see some fallout with a lot less um first a lot less investors interested in going the vc route when when that starts to happen and uh and relatively new vc groups uh disappearing a lot of that funding drying up and then, you know, what are the alternative options? The alternative options are going to be uh, investment vehicles that are, are are a lot less willing to give millions of dollars and say, go spend it as fast as you can just for growth. So, Yeah, very true. All right, well, the second one was uh, big tech will start getting desperate. Uh, they highlighted Meta, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft are all dealing with the challenges of reduced stock market value, which also has impacts on their talent. Strategic and competitive questions and new challengers coming to the market. Uh, they also talked about the engine of online advertising uh, basically petering out. Uh, Amazon's lock on e-commerce uh, potentially slipping, and Microsoft and Apple really are looking for that next growth engine for their businesses. Uh, and you know, overall, I, I agree. I think um, they all sort of are in this crisis mode. I think Meta is in a crisis mode more than the rest of them. 
Uh, and that's why they've been making some risky bets on like VR and some other areas in the metaverse. Um, you know, and the market's not reacting well to that. So I think that's also going to be an interesting bellwether for Google and Amazon and Microsoft because are they going to want to go risky knowing that the market's not going to appreciate that? Uh, but, you know, they got to figure it out. Yeah, Meta's definitely in a class of its own because I think the, the product that they grew up with is, is very generational. And I think that, you know, that, that generation is, is older now. Maybe they don't have time for that anymore. Maybe they don't care for those things. They have other concerns. Um, yeah, I think they. I don't think the VR stuff came came soon enough. They they haven't done a good job of selling it. Um, so I, I, I kind of put them in a in a different class. As far as Google, Amazon, Microsoft goes, I mean, Google especially. Um, they they're definitely going to get desperate because there's no money for, for online advertising, and that's where the, most of their revenue came from. I I kind of like to see. Uh, a paid service, you know, in a, for for people, not businesses necessarily. But I would happily pay for Gmail and pay for those services um, in exchange for you know not having my email read or, or some other kind of benefits or free storage or something else. I wouldn't mind paying for those things to keep to keep Google Live because it's a valuable service. Whereas Metro, I think, doesn't doesn't really have that kind of uh, grip on me. Yeah, but to me, that I mean, like Google, what percent of their revenue comes from advertising spend, right? AdWords effectively in its various forms. And what percent of its engineers are dedicated to that? Like, I think that is a pretty lopsided, lopsidedly high amount of revenue coming from that service versus the number of engineers associated with Google. And then look at all the other things Google does that it doesn't do great. Uh, and, but spends a lot of money on R&D on. Like I think- cloud? Everyone's got to focus on their core, right? <laughs> I'm going to leave cloud out of it because... For reasons. <laughs> uh, yeah, for reasons. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, I think, I think Microsoft is probably the one that's going to have the easiest time dealing in these challenges. Microsoft is used to it. They're, they're you know, completely different market. They, they, the places where they compete um, are not, I don't think are as... I don't know. I think I think Microsoft's in a better position. I think Google and Meta are going to have to focus on their core yep. and not just spend all their time looking for science projects to hire engineers to try out, to try a new market. Well, and I, I think a science project with a clear path to revenue is is a good thing to do, but I think Google has a lot of science projects that have no clear path <laughs> or very little right. revenue. Or you know, Again, it's what's the growth drivers for Google outside of ads uh, you know, cloud could potentially be one of those. You know, they still have to catch up in a long, a large part of the area that they're lacking compared to Azure and to Amazon. But um, you know, I I think that's why they're big on it. But you know, also I could see them divesting that business at some point too, because again, it's not making money today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do agree with you though on Microsoft. Um, you know, even when I was reading this out to you guys, I was thinking about that in my head. Is man, Microsoft's been this through a couple times. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. you know, the. The Windows, the Windows era to the services era, and they kind of lost their way a little way, and you know, a little while, and they tried to go into hardware devices, and that was a terrible disaster for them. And now they, you know, then they moved into cloud services and Azure, and that's been better. Uh, but remember Bing, you know, Bing was a terrible choice. You know, then they were chasing, trying to chase the Yahoo business and the and being a competitor to Google, and then they realized, well, why don't we just do what we do well, which is take our shit we installed on prem and turn that into services, and then charge more money for them, and that worked out really well for them. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Totally. Yep. I Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, Meta was right to pull the trigger. I don't think it was too early, but I do think that the market for Metaverse just isn't there. Um, but, you know, like I said, that's it's sort of like that sucks, uh, but they're right to d- go after something because their user base is aging out effectively. Um, you know, and it's it just, you know, that when when your audience um, comes for content and your audience is the content, you know, like the smaller that gets, it's just it's going to perpetuate and just decline very quickly. We've seen it before with MySpace, you know, um, Google. Yeah, no, I think they have to streamline. I think they need to be smarter with what they invest in and can't keep, you know, like they had all the money for a long time. And so there's a lot of standards and and processes where they can act like they have all the money. And I think that's going to be the biggest change for them. I don't think they're, the business is going to be in trouble. I think that they can, I think they have all the capability and all the smarts to do it and they will. Same, same with Amazon really. And yeah, Microsoft just keep doing what you're doing, right? Yeah. (laughs) They'll be fine. (laughs) Well, the first Oculus came out in 2016, so what's that, eight years? Almost, yeah, almost eight years, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like the technology advanced quickly enough to to let them monetize it as um, as soon as they, they want to, and they've kind of missed the boat a little bit. I think the entry point's too expensive still, too. I mean, like, the cost of an Oculus Rift is cost prohibitive. Like, I mean, the Quest is the cheaper version, which gets you more into the entry-level point, but the technology's not as good. I mean, the Oculus Quest is basically the original technology you just mentioned from 2000, uh, you know, 2006 or 2016. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so I think, you know, even looking at other alternatives, because I'm not a big fan of the meta platform because it it lacks parental controls. It lacks a lot of things that I would expect for a platform like that to have. Um, Alternatives, you know, are all even more expensive. (laughs) So that's a market that I think has potential. Uh, And we'll come back to that in a minute here because it's actually another prediction that's on the list. But, uh, It'll be interesting to see you know, how Meta kind of evolves. Uh, well, the next one is uh, mission critical. Uh, enterprise software executives are worried about converting their products from being discretionary to mission critical. Uh, against the recession and companies slashing their tech budgets, don't be surprised if people don't start asking, you know, is Slack really that critical? Or uh, you know, this fancy cloud thing you're bought for analytics, is it really adding the value you want? And and a lot of this actually thing is driven by the fact that there's been an over overemphasis on digital transformation for the last few years. Uh, and so I think people are going to really start asking, like, is this digital transformation actually adding value or saving money or doing what it promised to do? And is that going to make you rethink some of those spend categories? And that's, that's an interesting question. I, uh, it definitely made me think when I read through this one. I mean, I, I agree that that's exactly what's going to happen, but I don't think the the emphasis on cloud transformation or digital transformation is in air. I think that execution is just hasn't happened. You know, there there hasn't really been the commitment you'd see for a lot of businesses to make the changes needed to actually do it. So lots of words talking about this is the future and where where companies are going and what they need to do and adopt all these things, but very little actual commitment to it. And now with you know you know, in an economic downturn, like that's not going to be possible because it's all R&D and it doesn't have very clear path to revenue. And so it's like, it feels very much like a missing of a window that's going to have repercussions for for years to come. Number four, AI, AR, and VR and the next platform of the future. Uh, And they highlighted that only tech executives excited right now are those in the AI space who are, you know, doing amazing things with GPT and showing what the potential future of the world may look like. 
Uh, and then, of course, augmented and VR are polarizing, but maybe on the verge of a breakthrough, especially if the rumored Apple augmented reality headset comes out this year, as predicted. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you, you've hit the nail on the head earlier when you're talking about the platform of Oculus just not being good enough, right? I think that all the investment has been in the technology of virtual reality and 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 the optics to the to the user, and none of the investment has been on the platform. And I I really feel like this is going to take to get a real advancement, it's going to take collaboration across multiple companies. Like you're going to have to take Microsoft's Xbox platform and Oculus and sort of, you know, combine the two, right? Cause then you've got, now you've got a delivery for, for games and you've got a, a marketplace and you've got the content management and the restrictions and then the technology. And I, I just feel like everyone's trying to do their own thing to, to keep the money themselves, including Apple. And I just don't think it's going to succeed. At this yeah, I don't point. think yeah, I don't think Facebook is the right or Meta is the right company to be driving this because their whole incentive is to build a walled garden uh, metaverse, which you know I think they would probably be a lot better at building the community after VR has penetrated the market and being sort of the killer app, not being the one that innovates on the uh, on the VR technology itself specifically for their own walled garden. Like, I, I don't see that leading to success. It feels like two completely different focuses of a, like the type of company who'd be good at one is by definition bad at the other. Well, I mean, this is, this is Apple versus Microsoft, open versus closed, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot more money available to you in open, but you have to have a much more mature platform and open to be successful versus closed. You can be, you know, the best at what you do, but it has to be really high quality. And I feel like in the case of meta, neither, Neither one of those exists for an Oculus. <laughs> the open platform sucks and the closed garden is not perfect. And so you run into that problem of, you know, these gaps and, and those are holding it back. I mean, to me, it would be like trying to get the first version of Facebook, trying to get people to sign up for the first version of Facebook before people knew what uh, the World Wide Web was. Yeah. Right. Trying to create the World Wide Web yourself for the sole purpose of running Facebook. Yeah. It's like that. That's that's a that's a big ask. Well, the other thing about Facebook was that they didn't they didn't invent social media. <laughs> you know, we had we had right. GeoCities exactly. when I was a kid, and then we had MySpace, and we had you know all these other technologies out there, and I mean even go back as far back as ICQ and AIM and and all the instant messengers. That was kind of the beginning of some social stuff too. Telnet oh, yeah. servers. I'm old. Yeah. I'm really old. <laughs> BBS yeah. dial-ins? All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you go back to this thing, but, you know, Facebook just took what existed out there and made it better, and they made it consistent, and they made it a better platform, and that's what won the day for them at the end of the day. But they didn't invent that space. They just, you know, right. improved it. Uh, and I think that's the challenge. They're trying to invent Oculus, and they've never invented anything. <laughs> yep. yep. I mean, I think, I think there's a bit of a gap in, you know, who, who are the users supposed to be? I mean, do you expect businesses to set up virtual storefronts and have like a person sitting in an office constantly wearing VR glasses, you know, attending to virtual customers who walk in? I mean, I, there's definitely some niche applications in, in the medical profession for, with augmented reality overlaying things, you know, for surgeons or remote remote surgery with robotics and things like that. Those those are cool, but that's not what they're going for. That, that's, that's a very niche, very specialized, incredibly expensive piece of hardware, I would think. Mm -hmm. You're not going to buy an off-the-shelf Oculus and then go do heart surgery on somebody two thousand miles away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there you know, Zuckerberg. Been. Zuckerberg did like a three-hour um, 
with uh, on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, specifically around Meta and VR. So hearing his position on this, I mean, he is just so you can tell it's like it's what he's super interested in, mm-hmm. mm. <laughs> you know, uh, how it, the little discussions he has around, you know, whether or not your your view should see your your arms versus just your hands floating in space and, and how people reply respond to different interfaces. He's super interested in it. Yeah, but it is interesting. But he's, he's also not yeah, yeah. a guy who builds a business. You know, there was no monetization plan yeah. for Facebook until Sheryl Sandberg got there. I know. <laughs> Exactly. So like, yeah, that's all cool yeah. ideas and cool conceptually. And if you were a startup, you know, with a few hundred million dollars and in capital investment, you could answer those questions. But you're you're in a business that expects bajillions of dollars in growth <laughs> and and you know ad sales and things that you're just not delivering as a business. That's why the market's just beating them up. So yeah. And then finally, the last one is uh, talent management is going to become a major topic for companies with you know tech layoffs. Talent wars may have cooled off a little bit. Uh, but again, there's no sign the pendulum has fully swung back, and employers have all the leverage again. And that's why you know I think some people are reacting negatively to you know back to office edicts that are trying to come out now in 2023. Uh, and it, you know, and overall, the people who are leaving companies are still regrettable. They're people you don't want to have leave. <laughs> and so you know, when you say do more with less, it really means find new ways to recruit, train, and retain the best people, uh, so you can do more with less. And that's going to be the big challenge for talent management uh, over the next year. And I, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. No, it's exactly what I see. Like it's, is, you know, it's there, there are a lot of, you know, layoffs. And so the market of potential candidates is large, but it's, you know, the people who are making those decisions are choosing the ones that will impact the business the least. Right. And so you're seeing a, a larger pool of candidates, but there's significant gaps in skill sets and, and experience. And it's, you know, it's tricky. Um, right now to to be in the hiring market and because of that if you are you know a a demonstrated performer in a business like you don't really have to worry about that larger pool and and the competitive nature of the job market because you'll stand out and so it's if you're not working to retain your employees they'll go somewhere else because it's easy to if you throw enough incentives at them they they are already there and they stand out and that's what everyone needs right now. So it's I think it's more of the continuation of you know the gap in, in cloud skills particularly, but in tech overall. Agreed. All right, well, let's move on to our AWS news story this week. Uh, and I lost my tab. <laughs> Computer problems. <laughs> ah, there we are. Uh, first up for Amazon, Amazon Neptune announces a Graph Explorer, an open source visual exploration tool for low-code users. Uh, this will be available to you in the Apache 2.0 license. You know, effortlessly browse labeled property graphs for LPGs or resource description frameworks, RDFs, data in a graph database and discover connections between data without having to write graph queries. The tool provides a React-based web app that can be deployed in a Docker image to visualize graph data. And you can actually either Neptune or any Tinkerpop Gremlin or Sparkle 1.1 endpoints with the new tool. Can you imagine if you're out not in this industry just listening to the names of these products and technologies? <laughs> <laughs> like, what Tinker are they talking pop. about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's Yeah, I'm just jealous I didn't think of Tinkerpop Gremlin. Tinkerpop Gremlin. Uh. It looks pretty, but can you imagine, you know, what kind of value you're going to get out of a tool like this? It's going to be great for taking screenshots for presentations. It's going to be um, 
perhaps interesting to browse through data and, and dig in manually, but it, the, the size of data sets that people are working with nowadays in the, in the terabytes or petabyte scale, I, I, don't, I don't see that much value for a, a low or no code solution that, that draws pretty pictures of, you know. It, it was interesting because I had the same thought when I was reading through it. And in, in the article, and I didn't summarize it in my summary here, but uh, they mentioned that by being able to visualize the data, you could actually find new graph links uh, between data sets more easily by being able to visualize it in some cases. And so that potentially could then lead to you being able to use the data in different ways you hadn't been able to in the past. So if that's a true statement of like a problem people have, then potentially being able to visualize it could help you. But I, I don't know how true it is. Because again, like, if we get into graph databases and I sort of have lost the thread on them because I don't really understand it <laughs> as well as I like to. But uh, you know, endless relationships and graphs is, is important. And how do you see that visualization? I mean, it could be interesting to visualize you know, systems that are documented in graph DBs. You know, imagine you've got you know, HVAC systems in huge buildings and things, all the connected services and bits and pieces. It's kind of like, you know, I've seen this before. It's a Unix system from Jurassic yeah. Park in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's just part of the the low code, no code, you know, sort of, you know, democratization of, of these computer resources. And, and it's not going to stop. Um, it's, you know, it continues to, to advance. And so what's going to happen, you know, a biggest argument against these things is that, you know, they're going to work for just the purpose fit that they're designed to work for and not have the flexibility within the presentation layer to do anything, uh, you know, outside of those confines. And so it's sort of innovation stifling. But what's going to happen is because there still are software developers that they're developing these low-code and no-code solutions like this one, I think that we'll start to see those edge cases diminish or at least move. So it's it's kind of interesting because it is like I'm I don't I'm not sold on no no code or low code yet, but I am starting to starting to see like cracks in my in my uh opinion form. Well it, as I'm just exposed to it daily now. I mean if you can use a tool, a low code tool or a no code tool to, to build the code, then great. You can go in and you can build the queries by clicking through the console mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. codify those things and maybe that just accelerates the dev process. Mm-hmm. It also accelerates the learning process. Yeah. yeah. Because use the use the no code thing and then look at the code it created and you're like, oh, that's how that works. And then you can write it yourself or tweak it yourself later when you get better at it. Mm-hmm. That make people productive right away. Yeah. Any existing app that I've had to learn that has a static data set, you know, like the first thing you do is start just ex- examining all the tables, right? Yeah, not looking through every record, but like, how is it organized? What are the table headers? How, you know, these types of things. And so like, if you can do that with a very clickable and easy UI. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOp solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com 
or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. The AWS Transfer family uh, has uh, now at least some new features around PGP decryption. And I know when I first uh, saw AWS Transfer launched with workflows, I thought the very first use case was, oh yeah, for PGP decryption. <laughs> and encryption capabilities, that's a very common use case you have for PG, uh, for FTP and SFTP. Uh, but now AWS Transfer is giving you built-in support for PGP decryption, removing the toil of building and maintaining your own workflow, which, thank you, goodness. <laughs> uh, you can configure <laughs> and automate the decryption of files that are encrypted using PGP keys by their users before upload, making it easier to meet their data protection and compliance requirements. Uh, right now, this is for incoming files, but I do assume that if you're delivering files through FSFTP in the future, it will make the ability to uh, encrypt as well. Although I do sort of feel like this is something you really should have in your app so customers can do key management things, but you can now use AWS to basically orchestrate that, uh, which is nice. But uh, again, where you put this is kind of important, uh, especially for your end-user interactions with it. But uh, thank goodness, this is the big thing I always wanted from SFTP workflows was PGP encryption. Uh, there's a lot of amazing things you can do with workflows too. Like uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of other endless possibilities around pre-processing, post-processing, uh, etc. That are also really great. But a very common use case is PGP encryption and decryption operations. And so, yeah, thank you, Amazon. Appreciate this one. Awesome. Yeah, with any managed service, you're like, oh, thank God, I don't have to manage FTP anymore. Yeah. And then you're like, but it doesn't do the things I need that I've that I'm currently doing for the business. Yeah. You know, like so, it's it's good to see that these enhancements because I still don't want to manage that. Yeah, and workflows gave you the option FTP. to do it, but then you had to go write the code and you had to you know figure out how to import PGP mm-hmm. keys and how do you manage all mm-hmm. like there was a lot of lifting to do to to handle all that before. So, yep. Uh, let's move to GCP. Uh, they didn't have a lot of new stuff for us this week, but they did have their 2023 security operations trends for the SOC team, specifically the SOC. Uh, and I thought this was an interesting perspective on a 2023 list. So uh, there's five predictions here. I'm going to run through them a little bit quickly, and then we can maybe talk about each of them if you want to, or we can talk about the ones that are interesting. First one is a uh, prediction number one SOC meet cloud, cloud meet SOC. <laughs> prediction number two uh, AI advances for attackers. Prediction three, the way uh, socks are staffed will greatly change. Prediction four, the attack surface will get deeper consideration for the, the SOC. And number five, uh, hybrid work didn't hear any bell yet, and SOC will need to get serious about this area. Uh, so, you know, overall, the, uh, the it's sort of interesting to me because I, when I was reading through this, I was like realizing, yeah, you know, my SOC team doesn't really understand cloud. <laughs> they don't really have this perspective. And so this whole idea that, you know, they're going to have to figure out cloud in a much better way. And you know, one of the things the article recommended was that if you're a SOC person reading this article, the very first thing you should learn is IAM. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you should. Actually, that's a really good place for the SOC could add value and, and you know, look at credentials and how we're building IAM policies and say, you know, this is okay or not okay, et cetera. So very interesting. Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, a lot of traditional security operations has been at the infrastructure level, you know, tracking packets and, you know, using the header information of those packets to, for identification. And and none of that really works in cloud anymore because they're, you know, IPs are duplicated, you know, MAC addresses are sort of, you know, programmatically spoofed, you know, in order to keep them unique. And it's, it's really difficult to use those traditional methods to to watch traffic and follow a thread that you're looking for. And so the more you understand, you know, when an application's using a managed service and what that what that call is going to look like and the access controls that are there to protect access to that managed service, like the the better that you can actually 
do your job in security operations. And I feel like that's it has lagged behind for quite a long time now. I think the difference is it was very much static infrastructure before. Like you say, you know, fix IP addresses, fix things. And now, so it's easy to, to monitor servers doing particular things, but, but now it's, it's not about the servers, it's about the service itself. And so if, if you've got these ephemeral containers that, that spin up and spin down and auto scale throughout the day, you can never really say, well, you know, that particular container did a thing, you have to look at the service as a whole. And I think it's, it's a gap in the tooling, um, mm-hmm. not just a gap in the skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one that kind of gave me a little bit of a, a pause when I was writing up the notes was this AI advances for attackers. And basically with AI become, becoming more available, it opens up ways for attackers to easily create exploits, create more creative content for phishing and malware distribution. And uh, just as much as your dev teams are excited about this, the attackers are able to leverage these things too. And that now all of a sudden makes things much more difficult for your SOC team and your phishing campaigns and and all these things. And that one... You know, it was like, oh yeah, that's going to get bad because <laughs> no longer am I relying on a third-party, you know, non-native English speaker to be writing a terrible email <laughs> about you know uploading my Bitcoin. Now all of a sudden, they can tell the AI to write them an email and that basic concept that mm-hmm. actually makes sense and is logical. And it's enriched its data set with personal information about you, and so mm-hmm. it can call you by your nickname and and generate trust. Like it's it scary. It's a scary future, just just as much as like deep fake video is scary because like what what can you trust? The same thing is happening across multiple you know areas. Yeah, initially my initial response, my thought just with AI in general and security is wow, this is great. We have AI to help us find um, exploits and find attackers. But mm-hmm. then you put put the shoe on the other foot, and you're like, wow, wait a minute. If they start using these technologies, I think like you learn like in martial arts. You know, everyone likes the cool defenses, but when you get in, when you do things competitively, you quickly find out that all other things equal, the attacker has the advantage. And uh, yeah, AI versus AI definitely gets scary mm-hmm. for the, for us defenders. <laughs> I think it'll drive a lot more sort of walled garden type approaches to things. I mean, if, if you think about it, you can receive an email and outlook from anybody anywhere in the world, potentially, and you can open a document which may or may not contain macros or code or something else. It makes absolutely no sense. That's a terrible security posture. Why, why would you ever leave yourself in that position? But that's the position we find ourselves in after all these years. You know, I, I like the, um, the iOS implementation where each app is its own little box and they can't talk to each other. They can't do their own things. I think we need to think about moving desktop applications into a similar kind of model, really, to, to sort of enforce boundaries between things and prevent um, phishing attacks or, or other kinds of attacks from exfiltrating data or doing whatever else, stealing credentials. Yeah, it says the Android guy. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not made of money. I just picture the, sales, <laughs> picture the sales rep meeting someone at a conference and then finding out they can't email them until they go through the process of getting their company vetted and whitelisted for, so they can send an email follow-up. I don't want to be in sales anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. It sounds horrendous. Uh, well, that's it for the new news this week. Uh, let's move to our new series, the Cloud Journey series. Uh, hopefully there's music that played. I don't know. Jonathan's tasked with finding a new intro for it. Uh, but uh, this is a new a new thing we're doing. Uh, and you know, we, we looked around and said, you know, we have, you know, I don't know, at least 
60 to 70 years of cloud experience on this podcast, like just sitting here talking to you at home. And we thought, what? how do we help uh, people coming new into cloud or who are thinking about cloud transformation? And so we said, let's let's start focusing on uh, you know some topics and let's, let's do so. We created this little mini-series. And so this first one we're going to do is on the Cloud Center of Excellence, or the CCOE for short. Uh, and so we we have a couple episode arc uh, planned out here to talk about CCOE in depth, and so we'll we'll stitch this all together. So you can download just this part of the show at some point in the future when we're all done. But uh, you know this is something you'll be able to find reference on the website and, and be able to. But uh, it also happens to be that Ryan and I are, are building out a CCOE right now too. So it was uh, it was also uh, well strategically <laughs> planned. Uh, and so uh, first of all, you know, that, so first of all, the Cyber Cloud Center of Excellence. I'm like, what the heck is this thing, guys? I mean, I'm not going to go first. You know, I have just been doing this for too long and come on have all probably wrong opinions but they're mine well, so. i mean i can tell you i mean i can tell you <laughs> amazon invented it uh, uh and mm-hmm. they invented it through basically uh taking best practices that they were seeing in many of their companies uh, that were buying aws web services and and they codified a, a set of things that they felt were key success criteria to being able to be successful in the cloud and so they they focus on things about you know getting buy-in with executives, you know standardized ways you do VPC implementations, the ways that you think about IAM permissions and your account structures, and you know it evolved over time, right? Like remember, when Amazon you know originally had no firewalls and no VPCs, and so this all changed uh, over time, and and so basically this concept of a center of excellence kind of became this is your tiger team who is your cloud experts and your people who really understand the cloud in a big way. And are driving some type of strategic outcome for a business around cloud. And how's it any different, right? If you think about how's it any different from, I mean, IT's been changing all along. And what did we do before we simply um, stuck with our ITIL framework, with our, you know, and introduced new products or updated new products or services for our companies? And now it's different. This the cloud actually made companies change their organizational model. I think it's less about the, the the people and more about what the business grants to the cloud central ex- excellence in terms of its responsibilities, because I, I think you, you, I think the cloud central excellence. Ah, you know what? CCOE. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's way easier to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it really has to be the go-to place for for cloud governance and best practices. Well, I think it really came up out of a gap, right? So there was a traditional way of adopting cloud. And that was going through your IT departments who were the same teams responsible for maintaining and and providing physical infrastructure to your business. And as those teams were trying to adopt cloud, they weren't being very successful because of some shortcomings and, and, and ways of working that you need to start thinking and acting differently when providing a service to a business. And I feel like that that's what Amazon did when they sort of created the center of excellence. Um, sort of, you know, the definition of it and the blog post, and they even had a course that uh, Justin and I took um, where they defined, you know, basically it's not just how to use cloud technology, which is what the IT teams were focused on. It's how do you provide the value of cloud into your business and succeed, right? Because it's more than just the technology offerings and the 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 margin and the you know the profit value of being able to get to a market faster and so there's a lot it's a lot more complex than that but like we didn't need a virtualization center of excellence when virtualization became prevalent and we need one 
for cloud. And I think it has a lot to do with how quickly and how dramatically it changed uh, the environment and then how few skills were available uh, to get people you know, to, to adopt this new technology. And so now it's like, okay, how do we deal with the skills gap, deal with this huge change in how we're going to deal with technology moving forward and not have to wait until we can build that set of skills ourselves like, and it'd be pervasive across our entire organization. So, hey, let's start with this Tiger team, this CCOE, and then we'll have that capability internally. It might be small at first, but uh, at least we have it. Well, I guess the virtualization center of excellence would have been a virtualization team who specialized in building various you know, hypervisors out or managing, managing that type of thing. But I think the Cloud Center of Excellence is not an operational team in the same way. I think they help guide processes, define processes and guide processes to help cloud adoption. But, but I don't think it's, they're not hands-on in the same way. It's the value, right? So if you think about the value of virtualization, right, you're getting density of compute. You can thin provision, you can do a whole bunch of stuff, but in the end, it's the same operating model, just more. Compact. I think that, I think the, the value of cl- cloud is not. Sorry, Brian. But you're done. Uh, no, no I was, I was going to say, I think, I think the key thing about virtualization, you know, you're talking about something that impacts infrastructure. You're talking about cloud, you're talking about changing a lot. The way you buy hardware turns into from CapEx to OpEx. The way that you align your technology investments changes. The way you have to get billed you know, is monthly and not predictable necessarily. Uh, and I think that's the big difference in a CCOE versus the legacy transformations that happen. Because I mean, like, the virtualization thing, going from physical hardware to virtualization, was a huge transformation in IT. But it only touched IT. It didn't bother anybody else. No one else gave a crap about it. But this case in cloud, it changed. Like the CFO has to be involved. The C-suite has to know. The you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of commitments to Amazon, a bookseller, for goodness sakes. Um, and I think that just takes a different mentality. And that's why I think, you know, even when Gartner kind of finally codified what they thought a cloud center of excellence into, they really broke it down to three key distinct areas of focus, governance, brokerage, and community. And really, in, in governance, it's around, you know, aligning to a technical strategy, aligning to a business strategy, getting centralization, guardrails, policies, procedures, guidelines. And then moving into brokering, it's like picking the right sele- the right providers, picking the right solutions, the right architectures, the right uh, partners you're going to go with. And then on the community, then how do you take all of that governance and brokerage and how do you make it a community of practice? How do you make it collaborative? How do you sh- train people? How do you knowledge share? How do you get them through the change management of, co- of cloud? Because change management is just as complicated as picking a cloud. Is Now understanding the mindset of cloud native, that's a change management process that involves HR in many cases. Yeah, yeah not to mention, now we have developers designing and provisioning infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, non-infrastructure experts yeah. that are calling an API. Yeah, 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 right. So it's like there's there's a learning gap there, where you know where you know to compare to virtualization again, like it's the it was a smaller gap, right? You had to create the the virtualization layer and you had to do a couple extra things, um, but then once you established that, it was exactly the same um, as when you were running on a server. And, you know, like cloud is not that, right? There's not only do you have to learn a new set of skills, but yeah, the way you develop is different. The way you provide, you know, show back value to the business is different. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of crazy for a lot of businesses. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of businesses weren't successful in adopting cloud, like startups. Sure. 
because you know it's like the teams figure it out and they didn't have an operating model that they were coming from that they had to change and um and it was an easy enabler but once you started getting into the enterprise markets i think the cloud center of excellence really started gaining traction because mid-market enterprise it's a lot bigger entity to move to a new process I keep imagining a political cartoon with an auto scaling group going to the change control board meeting to spin up a new instance. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gartner called it community, but I think it's I think it's more important more importantly, um, really more about the hearts and minds kind of thing. I think mm-hmm. if you can you can have all the best strategies in the world, but if you can't convince the people who work for you or the, the people who work for the company or the people who work on the projects that it's the right thing to do. Um, and and sort of give them confidence in their ability to learn and and help help them grow as individuals from perhaps legacy roles into cloud roles. Then then you're not going to go anywhere. So I think mm-hmm. the, probably the most important function of the cloud center of excellence is um, is winning people over. Yeah, evangelization exactly. Yeah. That's, that's when I define it. That's exact. You know, I you know Gartner didn't have all the terms broken out when when I started down this journey. And so like when I, and my internal sort of like structure mapping, it's, it's all, it's, it's literally like almost like a religion, you know, you're evangelizing why this is better, why this is, you know, the advantages and, and here's all the things that adopting this new model will benefit you, right? Like not, not what's good for the business, what's not, you know, like it's also good for the business, but it's actually going and winning that developer is heart and mind. So like the, to adopt this new pattern and here's the changes you need to make to, to see those benefits. It's a big part of it. So, you know, you, we talked about what it can do and, and why, you know, what it is and kind of the charter or whatever, but you know, who's, who's part of the CCOE at the end of the day, who, who do you think is your key players in the CCOE conversation? It does a lot, right? It's hard. You know, this is a, this is, I almost feel like this might turn into, you know, its own, position at some point, because I feel like it's the skill set that's required, I think, to be on a successful CSOE, especially a, a one that's starting that is small, is you have to not only, you know, develop educational content, um, but you have to be a technical expert to define why one technology solution is better than another. And so therefore, you have to understand the business problem that you need to solve. Um, from a value and a time to market perspective. And then you also need to understand the finance areas of, of what the impact to the business is going to be. And so like you, know, you think about being on a cloud center of excellence, that's a lot of different hats to wear. And, you know, sometimes you get a principal engineer who's, who's pretty business savvy and they can, they can serve both and try to do that, but it is quite the challenge. Yeah. Well, you definitely don't want it to be too big of a group because uh, you know you you don't want your center of excellence to actually be doing a lot of the work. You want them to be setting the standards, setting the guidelines, you know, setting some of the the guardrails. But it shouldn't necessarily be the team doing the work. And so I think that's right. you know, the key thing you know around what you bring into it and and what stakeholders you have. And you know when we talk to Amazon, you know, in their charter, what they think this is, they they talk about architects. They talk about uh, HR people potentially for change management in cases in some large organizations. Uh, they talk about security should be part of your CCOE. Finance or a FinOps practice should be part of your CCOE. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and and ultimately, you know, people who understand code and on the engineering side, uh, as well as the infrastructure people who understand the infrastructure pieces, because you, like you said, this is the first time engineering is now calling an API to run a SQL server, and they don't know how to actually run a SQL server well. <laughs> uh, and the infrastructure guys know how to run SQL server, but they don't know how to do APIs. So you sometimes have to like match those two things together. And so I think your CCOE is small at first, you know, regardless of the size of the business, because you're focusing on a first initial project or initial set of things, but it has to have the right skill sets of all those things. And I, I think you you can't find that unicorn employee. Not everyone has a Ryan Lucas who understood all those things you just talked about. <laughs> Not all of them have a John. Ryan Lucas doesn't understand all those things. He just <laughs> talks true. real big. It's true, exactly. <laughs> uh, and and you know, so, like, there's strength and weaknesses. So you have to kind of build that team. And and the unicorn is really about building the team to be the unicorn that has all those pieces and parts. And so. You want to keep it small, you want to keep it nimble, but you want to make sure it has the key stakeholder aspects and thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a mega enterprise where you're trying to really do a big massive transformation, you know, that includes HR. <laughs> uh, in a small organization, you could probably get away with not having that. Maybe an architect and a couple, a cloud guy and a, an engineer is enough. So you really have to kind of size your CCOE to the organization you're in and the massive amount of change you're trying to do or the small amount of change you're trying to do in many ways. I remember watching a TED talk um, about how nobody knows how to make a computer mouse. Nobody in the world can tell you exactly how to make a computer mouse because, you know, you've got the oil and gas industry that, and, the, and the mining and the refining of the oil to turn into plastics. You've got the electronics side of things, you've got optics, you've got all kinds of different things. No single person in the world could tell you exactly how, how to make that. And I think the CCOE um, sort of has the same problem in a way that not like I say, there's no there's no Ryan Lucas uh, available for everyone, but I think the CCOE needs to be diverse enough to have sort of somewhat expert coverage in the areas which you're currently trying to do transformations. So if, even if you're um, doing a migration to the cloud and you have hybrid networking, you need networking people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's you know like it's a team effort for sure because no one no one person is ever going to know the skill set. Um, and it's interesting because not only is it a technical skill set, but it's like a, it's a mindset, right? So it's, it's, you, it almost is more important to, to be able to be a flexible thinker that can expand out of their boundaries of their current skill set and expertise so they can understand a different perspective of the business so they can help bridge that gap between two things and do the translation. And so like, it's, it's a, it is a quite a challenge, right? Cause it's. You, you, these are very technical, complex problems to solve for a business. And you have to do that in the way that you're communicating to the other parts of the business in the language that they understand and, and also trying to convince them to adopt a change and, and, and an impact to their day to day. And so it's, it is a, um, it's a fun problem, but it's a difficult problem. And so it's, you know, who the makeup of your team needs to be, you know, people that are enthusiastic and, and very flexible in that way and, and really want to encourage and, and drive change and, you know, make the business better and be very driven to do so. Yeah. And people who are trusted, I think is important as well, because I think you, can, mm-hmm. you, you can't hire a new, necessarily hire a new team to become that cloud center of excellence. You need to have an established trust with the C-suite or engineering or you know, the other stakeholders in the I mean, you, you can hire that new team. It has other political ramifications that you need to be aware of. <laughs> uh, like, if you <laughs> if you bring this new team in and you hire a CCOE team to do this and you give them all the stuff, it becomes a, you know, why are they going to do all the cool new stuff? Mm-hmm. So 
I, I don't, yeah. There is an advantage of having it being an isolated team, uh, but there's a disadvantage if you don't make them inclusive to other teams as well. And so you have to balance those two sides of that equation. Because I think if you don't, you you cause that rift that you know there's animosity between the Cloud Center of Excellence team who's doing all this cool stuff and everyone else who's doing you know NetApp filers. <laughs> um, but you know it, it's a good question. Why why can't you just add in you know a couple of these key things into an infrastructure team, like a cloud infrastructure team, or even to an engineering team? Say, look, we'll just hire a couple of cloud people and we'll just hire an architect in this cloud. And like, why can't they be the CCOE? Yeah, I think that some of that has to do with the fact that we've like the, what's driving all of this and what's driving the adoption of cloud. I think has a lot to do with delegating, you know, organizations delegating the authority um, and the accountability for infrastructure to product teams. And so now that it's been delegated, it makes more sense to have a group who's consulting and advising those organizations uh, because you no longer can just put that group in place who controls those uh, that infrastructure. I think it's key to any center of excellence that their overall arc for what they want to achieve in a business is to not exist at the end. Um, I feel like a, you need a cloud center of excellence as part of that bootstrapping, but that cloud center of excellence is by its true, by its very nature, can't do all the work that a traditional infrastructure team has been doing for the cloud. And so their job isn't, you know, to replace the cloud infrastructure teams. Their job is to, bring the cloud infrastructure teams on the journey with them and set them up like a Sherpa, you know, like, you know, here's all the things you're going to need and here's all the, you know, here's the differences in, in operating in this environment. It's, um, you know, it's being able to, to teach a, like, a traditional networking team that, you know, their role now is not to, you know, enable routing or, or, you know, make firewall changes. Their job is to teach developer teams how to use networking tools, which ones are the right ones, um, what are the advantages, and, and teach those developer teams how to make educated choices, and then also be a center of excellence themselves or transform into a center of excellence where they're not, they're no longer doing network operational work, they are advising the rest of the business how best to take advantage of someone's networking tools. I think one of the challenges too is when you when you're going on a cloud journey, right? And you're really taking this path. It's a transformation. And maybe it's tied to a digital transformation. Maybe it's tied to just a, a technology transformation you want to drive. I think this is really a chance to reset your business in a lot of ways. Like you've you've inherited you know, you may maybe 10 years ago you had COBIT and then you got into ITIL and you built all this ITSM and you changed management and these complicated remedy processes and you built all this out um, over time. And, and those things may be working just fine for you, but ultimately with the cloud, you want to start thinking about how to do those things differently and how do you get to be a cloud native. And what got you to be a tremendously successful company in a data center is not necessarily the thing that's going to make you terribly successful in a cloud world. And I think that's the the big you know mistake a lot of companies make is they think oh the cloud team can just do uh, the infrastructure team can just do this or the engineering team can just do this and so they they just take their existing thing and they try to then build it in the cloud and say okay we'll just do the same thing we do today but we'll just do it in the cloud and then you end up in you know you go to cloud without auto scaling you go to cloud without any thoughts to cost optimization you build 
Uh, you know, you don't use native cloud services. You leverage vendors that you've always used forever, and they all tell you that they're cloud native and they can do cloud just amazingly well. And and you didn't take the opportunity to rethink the way you fundamentally did some of the things that you did. And is that the right approach still today? And, and many times the answer is yes. And many times the answer is no. And you want to rethink it and you want to think about it differently. And some things are forced. Like you can't you can't move SQL clustering out of the box to the cloud, typically. You have to adopt always on, or you have to think about uh, you know, moving away from SQL technology altogether and, and thinking about more of a data strategy. Uh, and again, it kind of goes into like, what are you guys trying to do with your cloud? But I think that's the mistake that I see a lot of companies who struggle with their cloud journey is they they didn't take the opportunity to rethink their cloud story and their infrastructure story and their go-to-market story. And so they end up moving a lot of debt with them. And then they have to, you know, then they don't get the advantage of cloud at the end of the day and they end up spending a lot of money. Yeah. How many times have you, like, you had a team that's, you know, they want, they started adopting cloud because, you know, they wanted to, to be agile and, and be able to, you know, take the lead times of hardware provisioning down and, and reduce them down to minutes. And you find that you, if you put your traditional infrastructure team and you just sort of take that, ask that team to sort of expand their domain to the cloud and manage it the same way they've been managing private data center stuff that the, you know, the, the bottleneck isn't the hardware purchase process, right? There's a bunch of process that, that is going to change and deployment processes and, and different things that will keep you from being able to deliver. So understanding the advantages of why you want to adopt cloud is, is really important for a business even before they start the CCOE, because what do they want? Do they want agility? Do they want cost savings? Do they want, you know, the ability to innovate? Um, or do they want the flexibility of being able to turn things off and on and, and really knowing that problem to solve before you start a cloud strategy is super important because I've seen that mistake happen a bunch of times. Yeah. To, to go back and answer the question about why you couldn't add a, a CCOE person to an infrastructure team, I think the, the, the difference is traditionally people have been very focused on very small sets of, of uh, technologies. So you know, you'll have a network team, you'll have a database team, you'll have... Um, all kinds of teams, lots of different things. And they don't talk to each other in the same way that we see services being integrated in the cloud. I mean, if you, if you deploy, uh, uh, deploy some, some services in the cloud, they, may, you know, they, have, they have sort of consequences on each other, whereas previously they might not have done. And I think, the, I think one of the functions of the CCOE is to have the, the, the 10,000 foot view down on how all these things are connected together and how changing one thing somewhere will, will have an effect or could have an effect somewhere else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, just think about like, you know, something like a state machine or step functions and its impact on the network or, or shared storage, right? Like it's, um, yeah, it's really, that is a good point. It's like, oh, wow, this, this Lambda function can scale up to 20,000 calls a, calls a minute or something. Well, that's great. But how, yeah. how's the database going to respond to that? Not well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just, we just, we just melted the, the edge firewall down to molten slag. Yeah. So I think that, I think that sort of holistic view is, is an important part of what the CCOE should bring. Yeah. But, you know, this is, you know, what we're talking about is, is sort of hard for some companies, though. And so I think there's an opportunity for partners like Foghorn in these kind of conversations as well to, you know, maybe bring in that in-depth cloud expertise you're missing. Um, or, you know, bring in, bring in somebody who's been there, done that, and kind of gotten the t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, that's why I made my career on being that guy who's got the t-shirt and I go in and I fix, you know, SaaS companies. That's what I do. That's what I love to do as a, as a job. And and that's all through the cloud transformation lens, the DevOps transformation lens. but you know, 
I'm one person, <laughs> Ryan's one person, John's one person. And so, you know, taking advantage of a partner like Foghorn is a great way to do this as well. And, and you can augment your team while you're hiring the right people uh, or they can even help you find the right people in some cases too. So I think there's, you know, this is not an area that you have to go on your own, you know, take advantage of a partner too in, in many ways. Yeah. And definitely, I think that, that that's the right approach. Uh, I, this isn't something you can outsource. Find a partner who says, you're better off never building this capability yourself. You should outsource it to us. We're great at it. I think the right model is find the Justin and the Ryan and the Jonathan. While you're looking, you can't sit still and wait um, to move forward with uh, your innovation, your cloud initiatives and everything. So um, bring in a partner who's excited to help you along the way and uh, also comfortable working themselves out of a position. Uh, with that, uh, with that company in that role, with the expectation that you're going to do a great job, and there's going to be other ways for them to use you in the future. Yeah, yeah, it's a natural fit for consultancy, right? Like it's here's the expertise, and let's teach you all the things and get you get you rolling. And it's uh, you know, I've been uh, on, I've been on the the infrastructure side of things, trying to figure out this new cloud thing, and and ha- having a partner was absolutely key. Um, I think Peter taught me, you know, the first baby steps of cloud. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the conference room. For sure. Right. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and it was, it was super helpful and it, it, it definitely accelerated the business and, and got me pointed in the right direction where I could go then learn and make decisions. Um, you know, primarily that I shouldn't be talking to the business, uh, <laughs> but, uh, at least not directly. Um, but yeah, no, it's, 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 it's great to have that, that expertise and, and, and be able to sort of leverage that, especially as a, you know, a temporary sort of solution to build that in house. Agreed. Well, that was great. I, uh, next week we'll be talking about, you know, now that you've kind of defined your CCOE, like what, how do you establish its charter? And then, you know, what do you do first? How do you start? How, what do you focus on? And so we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk about kind of a high level about some of that next week. Uh, and we'll see you uh, next week here in the cloud. See you later. That was awesome. See you guys. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. All right. One of the things uh, that I am super excited about is that it's CES time. And, you know, we created a podcast two years ago or three years ago now focused on cloud. And then I can't talk about geeky stuff like CES. So I'm super excited <laughs> that we created this after show because uh, CES is, uh, he's been a dream of mine for a long time to go to it. But then it's always the week after New Year's. Uh, and uh, we, you know, definitely have enjoyed, uh, you know, like seeing all the cool tech stuff. So I, I found an article that kind of summarized what's going on. Uh, in the CES world. And so there's some, there's some cool stuff out there. And so I, I kind of summarized it for you guys in the show notes. The, the first one that I found that I just rolled my eyes out pretty hard is Sony uh, apparently is making an electric vehicle uh, car uh, by teaming up with Honda. So you're not actually making an electric vehicle car, you're just putting your name on it. And then they decided that they're going to name this car Afila. <laughs> Oof. I mean, 
I like Sony's design aesthetic and and I and I'm a big fan of Sony not developing a car um because Honda's been doing it a lot longer. So like I kind of like that and I think they're you know as far as two companies go they're very uh uh whatever the word is for you know, uh good together uh <laughs> since language has left me. But the name I I don't know if I can go with the name like a feel yeah, that makes some sense. Like I feel ya. I feel ya. Yeah. Mm. I kind of wonder if the controls were like PlayStation branded or something. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, which way are they going to go? Are they going to go the super sleek Sony, like high end sort of Apple thing, or are they going to go like the you know, yeah. lots of neon? <laughs> Make sure you know when he's uh, set the like invert X axis button before you start driving. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, other than dumb car names, uh, a Samsung apparently showed a concept that looks terrible, but it's basically a combination of a folding uh, screen plus a flexible screen that can stretch out basically uh, as like a companion monitor thing. Uh, I don't really know why I would want the screen that's going to definitely fail within the first 18 months of my owning it. But, uh, you know, if you want it, you can you can apparently have this maybe sometime in the future. If it ever gets out of concept phase, because again, it's CES. I to show you a bunch of crap that never comes. <laughs> I, I kind of hope the sort of technology around flexibility and, and stuff will actually helps make you know the rest of the cell phones a little bit more resilient because it's highly frustrating spending hundred dollars on a phone and you know you can put a case on it, but if you drop it on the wrong thing, it's going to smash. Yeah. So what, yeah. whatever they can do to help improve resilience of all technology by doing research like this, then that's kind of cool. I'm saving my uh, Asurian seven dollars a month charge to ensure the damn thing. <laughs> I just know I'm outside the target demographic now just because like it, a folding screen sounds like the the antithesis of what I want right like I had a flip phone it wasn't good then <laughs> you know I don't know why I would want Every one time I see the, the Galaxy Fold I'm always like yeah I'm gonna pass like I'm, I'm sure it's coming to yeah. Apple someday because again I'm an Apple fanboy on the phone side but mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm gonna be excited when it comes if it, if it ever does Mm-mm. but uh yeah. The other uh, other one that yeah. kind of caught my eye and interested was there's a laptop from Asus that uh, gives you glasses free 3D, and I just all I can think is like so now I, can, I have a laptop that I have to look at at a very specific angle. That sounds great. Yeah, really, really love that. <laughs> yeah. um, Even Nintendo a, a, a sort of abandoned the 3DS, didn't they? Yeah, because they did. it was just not not yeah. good Bill's eyes. Remember when every TV had a 3D. Option I for like still have two one. years, and then they yeah. just stopped out yeah. of nowhere. Well, I still have one of those. It was funny over the holidays, <laughs> Avatar movie came out, and uh, you know, 3D had kind of disappeared from the Cineplex. I hadn't seen the 3D movie in forever, or even when advertised, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's back, <laughs> back with a vengeance with yep. Avatar. And I'm and I'm hoping it goes away yeah. again because I actually mostly hate 3D movies. Uh, but I, I did really enjoy Avatar in 3D, it was fun. <laughs> I kind of wonder what's going to win. Right? Uh, you know, do, do you think um, decent augmented reality glasses will eventually win out over handheld devices? I mean, mm. yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I think sci-fi movies are a great predictor mm. of the future, and I think that's exactly if it's built in and native and easier than remembering to charge your phone, remember to bring your phone, and then yeah, no, I think that you know it's the adoption will be there for sure. Yeah. I keep thinking of Futurama now. I'm going to have to go find the episode with the iPhone where it's literally you pull your eyelid down and pop it right in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, then of course there's always massively big TVs. Uh, I saw a 97 inch TV uh, from LG, a new OLED, uh, but with no cables. That was interesting. It's going to use a 120 hertz wireless band. I thought it was, again, like, is that going to work well for 4K video at 120 frames per second? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but that was just something that yeah. jumped out to me. What did you guys see from CES? Anything that kind of got you excited? I totally forgot it was going on until you brought it up. So I feel uh, that I'm just out of touch again. I've been, I have been making like an effort to to stay a little bit less on technology because over the holidays, I, I, um, I, you know, I delved into technology to ignore my children. Uh, so, so I've been trying to be a little bit more present. So, um, but it, you know, it's always really exciting to see um, what they announce. And even though a lot of it isn't real, like I like the advances in technology that, that it sort of hints at and its future. And so it's, I'm now that you've reminded me, I'm super excited to go, to go read about it. Yeah. And this is cool. Well, I, I did so find something for you that I thought was right up your alley. Uh, so it's from a company called Aska. Uh, and it's the first actual yeah. flying car. It only costs you seven hundred eighty-nine thousand dollars. Shut up and take my money. Uh, but fine. you'll you'll be able to uh, you know apparently buy this thing someday allegedly uh, <laughs> once it gets FAA approval, uh, and it'll be a flying car that you can have. It'll take you places. So yeah, I thought that was wrapped your alley. And then um, you know I thought for yeah. also for your New Year's resolutions, and this is also for me because being a larger person, mm-hmm. uh, there's a treadmill desk that will charge your laptop only when you're pedaling. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, I love it. Forcing functions. So, so I, I thought, yeah, yeah, I might, I could take advantage of that as well. But uh, although it does yeah. get a little close to a Black Mirror episode of, of a similar style. <laughs> uh, that was uh, 15 million merits right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't come to work yeah. today. My legs are too tired. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, having suffered through a broken foot, this would have been interesting, but... I guess as least as it remains optional. And then uh, for Jonathan, I did find something for you as well. Because I know you're really into electric cars, particularly with Teslas. Uh, and so Ooh. I found you the Tesla of the sea. Uh, it's Candela's C8 EV hydro hull boat, uh, which is a battery-operated boat for only $390,000. Uh, autonomous boating. Only $390,000. Ah, jump change for Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's a little bit pricey for you. But uh, you know, other than that, it's electric and it's for you. For you. So you know, we live near water. So I can see you getting value out of this. All right. Might make the commute across the bay nice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Better than mm-hmm. the ferry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, anything anything yeah. you saw, Jonathan, that jumped out at you? I, I saw a, I saw some weird like Alexa integration things that there was some Alexa funded research into um, like home automation things and stuff like that. I'm like, well, if they just killed half the yeah, team and, and abandoned that, like they just empty in the chamber, they just missed the memo. I don't know. Yeah. There's like some interesting matter devices coming out this year for IOT home device automation stuff. Um, you know, there's so much though. We could talk about this for a whole podcast show on its own, but uh, yeah. yeah. One, one thing I did, I did notice was, um, you know, the Amazon sidewalk network, which is very controversial to begin with where, you know, sharing your little bit, bits of bandwidth with, strangers walking past your house i'm seeing more and more um uh devices that can actually integrate with amazon sidewalk now interesting oh, cool. i hadn't seen anyone adopt it past the initial hub i believe it was like a natural gas leak detector or something so you know i was i was hearing an advertisement on the radio for uh, xfinity home wi-fi and and home you know internet ser- you know phone service so you can basically have a phone service that runs on xfinity mm-hmm. for cell phone but also uses xfinity wi-fi and um 
like I can see it being intriguing. Like if you could use Amazon Alexa devices for you know some type of communication device and there's a subscription, you know, I, like there's potential to something like that. But again, you have to get past all the privacy concerns. You got to get past all the other issues with it first. Well, Xfinity's been doing this for oh, yeah. years, right? That was the other funny thing about the sidewalk thing was, you know, like it was a big selling point for a long time. For if you're an Xfinity customer subscriber, there's free Wi-Fi everywhere, which isn't true because it's terrible. And, and you know, <laughs> everyone who was smart enough to realize that their home router was p- producing two Wi-Fi networks turned that yep. right off. But uh, you know, like it's it is the exact same thing. It's kind of crazy. Right. Well, CES is still going on, so maybe there'll be more next week we want to talk about, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. I got to geek out about CS with you guys, which is fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm gonna go nerd. I'm gonna go look right now about home automation stuff because yeah. you know, I'm sure there's gonna be like, you know, right now this, there's a really good article I, I posted in the show notes for CNET, which you know they're highlighting what they think is cool, uh, where some of these things came from. But uh, yeah, there's way more than this. Like, I mean, you, the whole Nvidia and AMD keynotes, you know, are packed full of crazy stuff they're doing. And you know, new processors, new video cards, new services. It's, it's there's lots out there. CS is a busy time. Which is why part of the reason why going to it is also kind of a waste because it's so big and so massive that you'll never be in the right place at the right time to see the right cool thing. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it is what it is. All right, guys. See you next week. See you later. Yeah. See ya. It's been fun. <laughs>